0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Before we begin today's episode, I want to advise caution. Today's conversation includes discussion about sexual violence and could be triggering to some listeners. Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I am grateful to have Lisa Saruga on the show to share her story and the way God is using her experience to bring change, As a college freshman, Lisa was raped, knifed, and nearly suffocated by a man wearing a ski mask. 35 years later, the identity of the masked man was discovered, but a maze of legal obstacles did not lead to the justice she desired and he deserved. However, that experience opened her eyes to the huge holes in the justice system, and now, In addition to counseling, she advocates for victims' rights. How is God at work in her story? Listen in to find out. And if you are moved by her story, please share it with a friend. We can all gain encouragement, perspective, and hope from Lisa's fortitude and faith. Good morning, Lisa, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Good
2: morning. It's so good to be here.
1: I am grateful for your time and really looking forward to our conversation. And so let's jump in because there is a lot to talk about, but I always begin with, when did you begin walking with Christ? Tell us a little bit about your faith journey. And I know that plays into a huge part of your story, which we'll get to, but primarily like, when did you begin walking with Jesus?
2: You know, I I did grow up in a church. Um, My family was Catholic. So I always knew there was a God. I believed there was a God I knew of Jesus. And when I went to college, you know, that's when I started questioning, is this all real? Why mm-hmm. did we go there? And so during college, I I did have a um, an incident that we're gonna talk about, and that, that did play into um, my belief system. Mm. And so I would say it was later in college that I finally, felt that I knew Jesus, that I had a relationship with him, that I gave my my life over to him.
1: Yeah. Well, and speaking of that incident, you were in college in the 1980s and a life-altering event did happen to you, a tragic Mm life-altering event. And so Share that with us as much as you feel comfortable, just so that as we dive into this conversation, people do kind of know where we're coming from, why, what we're talking about is important to you.
2: So I was a freshman in college. I was just 18 years old and I was in my Mm -hmm. dorm room. My roommate was gone for the weekend and I was asleep. It was the middle of the night. Um, and I woke up kind of confused, didn't really know what had woken me up. And as things came into focus, I realized there was a man in a ski mask crouched next to my bed. Oh my gosh! And so that early morning, I was raped, knifed, and nearly suffocated by this man. Um, I did not see a space. There was a three month investigation. The investigator really kind of thought my story was too far-fetched and sensationalized, so, um, there wasn't a great deal of belief. So the, the investigation was, was short and not very thorough mm. and, and then it ended, that was it. Nobody was arrested and, um, nobody was talking about it. So I thought it was no big deal and I put it away too and didn't, didn't talk about it to think about it for a long, long time.
1: Oh my goodness. There are so many questions that I have about this, Lisa, and I know it was the 1980s and so we've come a long way, but I'm like, wow. Okay. So first of all, was your dorm, were you on the first floor?
2: No, I
1: was on the second floor.
2: It was locked. Um, He had slit a screen in the basement of the building and oh. come in that way. And I had had a friend over earlier and I fell asleep on my bed, mm-hmm. fully closed. And when that person left, you know, it was a deadbolt door lock. They couldn't lock it from the outside. So they had left my door unlocked.
1: Wow. And then I'm assuming because. Typically, this is what happens in colleges, but, you know, obviously, I went to college a little bit later than that. Was it campus police that showed up to investigate? It was. Okay. And then, so a three-month investigation is not very long, and I'm curious, how in the world did you stuff that down and say nothing, and did you stay at your university?
2: You know, at, at first, you don't stuff it down. You you live the trauma, and I was right. taken to the hospital. It was all reported, you know, I did all the right things. And I was sent to a counselor, I went to counseling two times and decided that was enough, I didn't need to talk anymore. My mindset was, I was happy at college the day before it happened. And I needed Mm -hmm. to be happy at college again. So I went right back to class that Monday, I didn't go home, um, returned to all of my activities. And this is not uncommon for people who experience sexual violence.
1: Okay, Um, it's,
2: it's pretty common that we we just want life to go on and no one else mm. is talking about it, you know, other people move on. And so it must not be a big deal. And, um, I don't want to be a drama queen. So I'm just, you know, it is what it is. It's in the past. I'm going to move forward. That was really my mindset too. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the second part of your question.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean there again, it's because I asked probably four questions in one, but <laughs> I mean, and, and your parents felt similarly. So that's
2: interesting too, (laughs) because um, this is part of my faith journey. You know, I really believe that we get our first impressions of God from our our father on Earth. And um, my dad was a pretty temperamental, unpredictable man. I knew he loved me, but I was also very afraid of him. And that was my image of God, like God was this person up in the clouds who had a quiver of Um, lightning bolts and he was just waiting for me to mess up and I was going to get zapped. So, you know, all of that kind of tied together during this time, because honestly, my my worst fear as this was happening wasn't that I would die, I was pretty sure I was going to die. My worst fear was what happens after death? You know, have I been good enough? Are those Mm -hmm. lightning bolts all going to come, you know? I um, if I survive is God gonna be mad at me? is my dad gonna be mad at me? So um, when I went to the hospital, they told me I had to call a parent and I was on my dad's insurance. they dialed the phone and handed it to me. That was not my choice. Oh wow. And I told my dad what happened. And here's the interesting thing. my dad handled this with so much compassion. Oh. He said and did the right things. He said, I want, to, you know, I want you to come home, and I said, no, I don't want to come home. He said, fine, I would like to come and see you, but you tell me when it's a good time. He, would, he handled it great, and then later that day, he came to see me at school, and he cried. That's the first time I've seen my dad cry, mm-hmm. and it was such an expression of compassion and love mm-hmm. um, that that was a real changing point that was very pivotal in my relationship with God, too and understanding who God is. At the same time, it's very re-traumatizing every time somebody has to tell a loved one what's happened to them because then you experience their hurt and their trauma. So this is horrible. I called my mom that day because I knew I had to. And this is what I said to her. I said, Mom, I have to tell you something. And when I'm done, I just want you to say, okay, and hang up the phone. And I told her what happened and she said, okay, I love you. And she hung up the phone. And I know there was trauma after she hung up that phone.
1: Yes, I think about my own babies. I I (laughs) don't know if I could have done that.
2: You know, she did. And and we didn't talk about it for many, many years, really. She respected that. But I know that was hard for her.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership at Bow. We believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills.
1: So Lisa, because you, I mean, you weren't injury free, Mm -hmm. but you went back to school on Monday and then you also said you thought you might die. So where does that come together? Is it just because so early on the trauma was so bad for like a couple of days that you were like, I have no idea what's going on?
2: You know, it's, it's self-preservation to just, Mm. you know, it's like, okay, it's like something I watched on TV. Mm, I could gosh. just move on from here. My wounds weren't severe, so I was able to function.
1: Right, but you um, didn't know that like originally, you know, right when you first went no. in? No,
2: when I, when I thought I was gonna, I mean, he told me he was going to kill me. <laughs> so
1: oh, okay. and
2: I, I kind of was, I actually, this is interesting, because I wasn't sure where I was in my faith, but I started praying out loud.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm praying, and he said, for who? And I said, I'm praying for me because I'm really scared and I'm praying for you because I think that there's a God who doesn't want you to do this.
1: Wow, Lisa. So. Oh, my goodness. And so in this process, then as you go through college, there's not really any mention of it, but Christ does begin to become a friend to you. Mm -hmm. What was that process like?
2: You know, I think God surrounded me with the right friends. Mm-hmm. I became a high on campus and my closest friends were Christian. And we would go to a Christian, fellowship of Christian athletes together and I started me serving too. in a church. Yay! <laughs> I started serving in a church there with, with one of my friends He's still a dear friend. Oh, I love it. Um, and, I, you know, your eyes are open when you start making friends who have a totally different relationship. With it's jesus. so true gosh it's um, so true you know i remember thinking remember the the quiver of lightning bolts was always my my image and um and i would hear my friends like praying and talking to jesus as if he was in the room he was a friend and you know even sometimes they would joke while they were praying and i'm thinking oh those lightning bolts are gonna hit any minute now and they didn't <laughs> and they didn't and i realized that they could had this prayer relationship because they weren't afraid of god they knew god loved them they knew jesus loved them and died for them Mm -hmm. um and so that was just a huge eye-opening time in my life was to make these friends who really got it and really had a relationship and i'm not i don't want to you know the i don't want to say anything bad about the catholic church because the catholic church is where i learned about jesus right foundation Um, yes but in my particular church we had a very um a priest from Poland who was very very conservative who really didn't teach us about relationship it was rules Mm -hmm. so just you know my my background just didn't didn't take me to a place of relationship
1: yeah well and I mean I think too like I didn't grow up necessarily in a liturgical church but I was in and out of a liturgical church and um that did teach a, more about relationship, but I think certain environments definitely lend itself better to growth in Christ in relationship when you're not getting that always at home. Like there's not your parents may be Christians, but they're not necessarily discipling you at home. And so the environment you're in outside of home, I think bears a whole lot more weight.
2: I absolutely agree. And and keep it. This is a tangent. But um, when I was in high school, my parents divorced. Yeah, um, my dad had just really suffered with bipolar disorder. Mm. And when my parents divorced this priest that we had, um, bless him, he's in, I hope in heaven, <laughs> as we yeah. speak, but he, um, he didn't, he no longer allowed my brothers and I to participate in activities in the church. When they gave bibles to oh, you know, our classmates we didn't get a bible because our parents were divorced it wasn't mm-hmm. um representative of all liturgical churches this was a yeah. person who just probably didn't get it
1: right just um, very much more law-based yes exactly well so your perpetrator did remain unknown for 35 years yes and That is the case for some people their entire lives. But at some point, I guess I want to know first, what did day-to-day life look like during that waiting? It sounds like you just kind of put it away and didn't think about it anymore. But did the time come up where you did start thinking about it a little bit more or was it, you know what, this is out of the way until you get a phone call?
2: It was packed away. I always say it was like I had packed it away in a box and put it up on a shelf in the back of my mind. And I just didn't think about it. I hadn't, you know, by the time what happened happened, and and we'll talk about that. My kids were grown. They didn't know what had happened. None of my friends knew what had happened. Wow. Um, I was going to be a music teacher. And you know, it did that incident changed the course of my education. I became a counselor. And I think that some people knew that I became a counselor as a result of some trauma, but I just didn't talk about it. I was able to walk with so many others on their journey to healing, but I never walked my own journey at all. It was just stowed. I mean, I
1: think I get so floored by that because I'm such an open, like I just pour it all out there, but I wonder how often that does happen for someone who walk who experienced something like you did, because to bring it back up and to talk about it again, is just reliving
2: it. Is that what you would say? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, it's just, again, it's self-preservation. Yeah. Um, I'm a trauma therapist and I have so many clients who have done that. They just, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. I'm fine because it's just not a part of my life. Mm. And they are fine in that moment. But someday when something triggers all of that stuff to come down off of the shelf and say, here, it's time to relive this, you know, you just don't know when that moment's coming.
1: Right. Well, and Dan Allender talks about that a lot, how, you know, we can do fragmentation where you, we can mm-hmm. kind of put this over here and it lives there. Yeah. And then this part of our life lives here. But when you see things like isolation come up, those are all actually responses to right. this traumatic experience that you don't even realize. That's the reason why you're doing it.
2: Yes. And so as a trauma therapist, I'm, i and I don't get too much into the science of it with clients, but right. you know, trauma lives in a part of our brain called the amygdala. Mm-hmm. And the amygdala just holds on to memories that are associated with strong emotion. And mm-hmm. when something triggers, it's not something you can consciously access those emotions. It's, right. it's something happens unexpectedly that triggers the amygdala and it just releases all this emotion into you. And you might not even know where it comes from. You don't you don't mm. associate it with an event. You just, it's just it's pure emotion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I do EMD, EMDR therapy with my clients because talk therapy, we can, t- when you start talking about it, you could talk about it for years and still not process because talk is all in the, a different lobe, right? Yeah, exactly. More like, mm-hmm. Whereas EMDR therapy really forces the brain to access amygdala.
1: Ah, I see, I could talk about this all day. We need to have like a whole (laughs) other conversation that just has to do with trauma therapy and, you know, secondary to your story, because that's also interwoven. Mm -hmm. But I do want to know, I mean, the the day did come that your cold case was reopened. You'd lived all of these years. And what did happen? Tell me that whole process. Like, did you
2: just get a phone call? Were you like completely shocked? yes. So um, 35 years later, it was 2018. My husband and I had moved in with his parents to take care of them. We still do that. Um, We still have our mother-in-law that we're taking care of. And that was a stressful time. And Mm -hmm. eventually we ended up with all four of our parents in our home with dementia and other issues. Kudos Um, to you. And so I woke up one morning and I was, you know, singing praise and worship songs. And I journal in the morning and I was writing in my journal and I was... Telling God how stressed I was. And then I said, I wrote, How much stress do you think I can take? Never, ever ask God how much <laughs> stress he thinks you can take. It's as bad does, as
1: praying for patience, <laughs> right?
2: Exactly. He does not say he's not going to give you more than you can take. He says that he's going to be there to help you through it. That's right?
1: exactly right.
2: So I wrote those words and my phone rang. It was like that quick. Oh. And it was a detective from Central Michigan University. And he said, you know, we're working on a case and your name came up and we need to talk to you. We're coming to your hometown today. And I asked what it was about. And he said he he would share it when he got there. So I got off the phone and my mind did not even go to that incident. Really? No, my mind went to I had gone back to central. I worked as a resident hall director there. Mm -hmm. You know, I had had a student that died in my hall. I had Mm. students who were involved in different things. So I'm just thinking, you know, what could possibly be (laughs) the, the issue? So here's the interesting thing that God did. When I was 18, the first person I met at Central Michigan University was a very dear friend named Tony. And Tony and I ended up being RAs together and hall directors together. He ended up being my supervisor at Central for a while. I sang at his wedding, we're still best of friends. But Tony, and the, at that time that I got the phone call, was also the Associate Vice President of Student Affairs. He oh. oversaw the police department as part of his job. Wow. So I called Tony when I got off the phone with the detective and said, <laughs> I said, Hey, did you and I do anything in the past that we're going to get in trouble for? Because <laughs> this person's coming to talk to me. and." He said, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, <laughs> You're like, that was twenty
1: some years ago. I exactly. thought that was a
2: decent kid, but I don't I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. So um so he, he got off the phone and he called the police. And about ten minutes later he called me back. And here this is the God moment. God set Tony in my life 35 years before and made us very close friends, mm-hmm. knowing that Tony was gonna be the person to tell me that somebody had revealed the identity of the man in the ski mask. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was Tony that told me. I was in the living room with my husband and I just remember I started shaking and my amygdala went, woo, Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) and Started shouting, didn't it?
2: Oh, the emotions. It was like, it was 35 years ago when I was 18. Yeah. All I could do was cry and say no and, you know why would this come up again now i didn't i didn't want any part of it and i i truly experienced ptsd for the next several months um, i mean i'm sure yeah so people kept saying to me you must be so excited that they found them," and uh, i wasn't i was just mm-hmm. i was having nightmares and um, intrusive thoughts and I would cry and not know why I was crying. It was, it was a horrible period of time. Mm. And you had to tell your children, your husband. And it was re-traumatizing just like it was when I was 18. You know, my husband, at the time, my youngest son was working for my husband and he was, um, my husband's a builder and my son was doing something in the backyard for a project. And when I. I mean, I just didn't know what to do. My husband asked if I was okay, and I said, I don't know. And, you know, he knew that things were not good. (laughs) Right. He was so wise. He went and got my son and brought my son in. And it was like this moment of, you survived, you had life, you've had kids, you're okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So that was was a real important moment.
1: So when did it end up? Cause it ended up in court. This man was, it didn't end up in court. It did not. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, what, what
2: happened? Did you. So there was another three month investigation. Okay. You know, we thought this was going to drag on for years. The prosecutor had said, you know, he wanted to really go after this. And, um, he was very interactive with the detective. The detective was wonderful. Uh, the first thing he said to me was, I want you to know, we believe everything, mm. you know, we're going to do everything we can. Three months seemed like a long, long time because for three months, we're waiting for them to make an arrest. Oh. Um, and every week they would say, you know, prosecutor should be issuing an arrest warrant and then we can get his DNA and see what else he's linked to. And And it was like three months of, when's it going to happen? And then the prosecutor stopped talking to the attorney or to the detective and we couldn't figure out why. So three months in the detective kind of forced the issue and applied for an arrest warrant. And at that time, that prosecutor handed my case off to an assistant prosecutor. So the assistant prosecutor could tell us that although there's no statute of limitations in Michigan now on that law, there was in 1983 and he would never be arrested for the crime.
1: Oh my gosh. Why did they even contact
2: you then? I asked God that several times. Right? I mean, fair. The detective who I just think the world of said, he, he asked the same thing. He was not sure he wanted to even bring it back up, but he said, I think you needed to have the right to decide what to do with the information. And he said right up front, if you don't want to press charges, we'll never mention it again. If you do, I'm all in. He left that all up to me.
1: But you couldn't press charges. So, I, I mean, it sounds like when I'm hearing this is they should have known that this statute of limitations was there before they ever contacted you.
2: They should have. There were some real issues with the prosecutor. Um, mm. He He lied several times. During the case, he he ended up, um, there was quite a, a news newsworthy mm-hmm. incident because he had closed several sexual assault cases and some of them without reason. Oh so actually, the, uh, the Michigan Attorney General's office got involved in my case and others. And that's a whole nother story. Right,
1: right. <laughs> well, so did your perpetrator ever actually face justice? I mean, in I think that he did in some regard, but I don't know that part
2: of the story. So he did have an incident as a teenager. My understanding is that he he had an incident as a teenager when he had exposed himself to a small girl, but he was young, so they didn't arrest him. Now that's all hearsay. The person who reported him told me that, but he was arrested a few years after what he did to me. And interestingly, he, he was arrested. He entered a home by slitting the screen in the basement, just like he did at the residence hall. And it was a crazy incident. He was naked from the waist down. He was going through the laundry to get women's underwear and he got caught and was right. arrested. You know, So there were some fetishes there that right. were going on. But he did probation and then it was expunged from his record. So he has a clean record. He's actually been a Boy Scout leader. Oh, goodness. Um, Then when my case was closed, I was told that I don't know, uh, you know, if he was or wasn't, but he was a person of interest in 2 rape homicides, but they couldn't connect him to the scene. So most everyone believes, yeah, there's, there's gotta be other cases, but he has not ever served time.
1: So then in a situation like yours, where the statutory, uh, wait, statutory, no. Of limitations. <laughs> Which statutory might go, <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> other thing, right? The statute of limitations is up and you know who it is. That's it. Just case closed. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. But I'm
2: taking it a little further.
1: <laughs> well, and that's what I want. I mean, I think as I hear your story before we move on into what you're doing now and why that finally made you say, okay, I have to speak up for this. Mm-hmm. During this time when you're like, okay, I'm experiencing PTSD. You've told us that you asked God, like, why would you even let me know this? Yeah. What was the tension like in your relationship with Christ with that at that time?
2: Or was it tension? It was, um, you know, journaling is what I did. That's right. And at one point, shortly after I learned that it was open. The case was opened. This was like a week later, It was the 4th of July. And my husband said, you know, he knew I was sad. He knew mm-hmm. I was struggling. And he said, um, let's do whatever you want today. Anything you want. The day is yours. And I said, I want to run away.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And he said, where do you want to go? And I, or, where should we go? And I said, I want to be alone. I don't know where I want to be. I just want to be anywhere but here. Yeah. And so my husband, helped me pack and run away. Aww. <laughs> and when he put my suitcase in the car, he said, you don't have to tell me where you go, just let me know you're safe when you get there, yeah. which was wonderful. Um, but I went back to the scene of the crime and wow. I picked up, I don't, this is my creative bent, I guess. I picked up black paper and white pens and I started writing and I said, because life is upside down and inside out right now, this is how I'm writing. Yeah. And I ended up writing white ink on black paper through that entire situation. And there were times, and I wanna wanna tell your viewers this too, because what I did was I would just write whatever was on my heart. I did not filter it. I wrote raw. And then every time I ended writing, I would look for the themes in what I wrote and maybe it was justice, or maybe it was forgiveness, or maybe it was anger, whatever, I was writing about that day, I would Google scripture on justice, mm. scripture on whatever I was writing about, and let God speak back into it. And I would write a couple of those verses that stood out to me at the end. Mm. I did that for a year. And that was the most healing thing I could have done because what happened was, it became this dialogue with God. And when I looked back at my black paper, I realized that God and I had written a brighter future onto those dark pages. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And he loved me enough to let me yell at him, to tell him how mad I was. And, you know, go back to my earlier view that God was a a God of lightning bolts. I learned that God didn't get mad at me at all. He knew exactly what I was dealing with and loved me anyway. Mm. So that was probably the most healing thing I did.
1: Well, and is that what you mean when you, you know, something that you've said that you have written on your website is healing can be attained even when the world offers no happy ending.
2: Absolutely. You know, I wrote my book. The first book I wrote was my memoir and it was, um, there was a lot of excitement about it. And then there were two major publishers interested who ended up saying, you know, I think we can publish this after you get a conviction or if you can make a new law. Like they wanted the happy ending. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, when it comes to sexual violence, only two and a half percent of rapists go to jail. The vast majority of us don't get a happy ending. And we don't have to have a happy ending in this life for God to be able to heal us and make us whole.
1: Mm. Wow. It is so powerful because for a lot of reasons, that's a hope that can be hard to cling on to that we have to repeat a lot of times more than once a day to ourselves, right? Yes. It's also sad to me that in the publishing world, that's what we look for. (laughs) Always what's going to be wrapped up in the pretty bow. And that also is a whole other conversation. I had that a few weeks ago with Caitlin Beatty, actually, who Mm -hmm. is an acquisitions editor. Just... You know, like, how does that, how do we wrestle through that in the Christian world? Because really it should look different. But I, I could take a lot of things from that because God really is, Jesus really is our only hope, but it's not like he just always rides in on a white horse and sweeps us off our feet and we don't have to remind ourselves of who he is and his consistency and his faithfulness in our mess on a daily basis.
2: Absolutely. And you know, when, when this case opened, all I could think was why would God let this happen 35 years later? Why now? Mm -hmm. Right? And God did show me why. But I had made up my mind that the whole reason this was reopening was to give me the two things I wanted most. I wanted justice and I wanted closure. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I was convinced God was going to send this guy to jail and I was going to get justice and I was going to get closure. God is a just God, there will be justice. Mm -hmm. But our world isn't going to necessarily offer the justice that we want. That's right. And closure, God never promised us closure in this lifetime. Closure comes in the next lifetime, then I'll have clear understanding. But what God did teach me was, in the absence of closure and justice, He still can find purpose. Yeah. And to me, purpose is so healing, you know. It seems so pointless what happens. It seems so, why? Why would that need to happen? And I don't think God purposes for us to experience that kind of trauma. Right. But I believe he can use it for purpose. Absolutely.
1: And he has in your life because while you went for decades, not speaking about what happened to you, now you are someone who advocates on the behalf of other survivors of sexual violence talk a little bit about your advocacy work what you do how that has been a part of your healing process and why it is so needed to do what you're doing
2: thank you for asking that question this is so important to me And you're right i didn't talk about it for 35 years and now they can't shut me up (laughs) (laughs) all those words that were inside are all all going to come out (laughs) so what i learned through this process was um, not good things first of all that assistant attorney general that was assigned to my case ended up sleeping with some of the victims and being arrested for criminal sexual conduct (sighs) and then i was told that there was safety issues for me that I needed to take safety precautions. And this was a, a special agent from the Attorney General's office, you know, like something from TV that this guy would call me and say, you're in danger. And we can't help you because there was no conviction. So technically, you're not a victim. And so there's no victim services. Wow. Um, what the heck? <laughs> exactly. So I went to my the chief of police in my hometown, who said, yes, we'll put together a safety plan. And then he was arrested for criminal sexual conduct.
1: Oh. And
2: so it was like, God was saying, look, open your eyes. There's a huge problem in our nation. Things are not so different from 1983. Things have not changed a lot. We think they have, because we talk about it more. Right. But there's all these laws that make it impossible to get justice. And, mm-hmm. you know, people ask me, you know, don't you believe in prison reform? There's too many people going to prison. I do I think we should get all of the nonviolent people out of jails and put the violent people in who really pose a threat. Yeah, to people. And so, you know, I just really got charged up about this. So I started going to Lansing and knocking on doors and talking to legislators. I did the same thing in Washington, DC. And here's what I there, there's several areas that we're working on, but what my case has illustrated, there's a few things, is that there's a decision that was made by the US Supreme Court called Stogner versus California that makes it impossible for states to retroactively remove statutes of limitations. So rape is a, a state crime. Okay. So we've got this federal law that makes the states unable to make an arrest, and then we have victim protection which is at the federal level but the state has to get a conviction before they'll protect oh. do you see what i'm saying yeah so mm-hmm. we just set ourselves up so that there is no way to keep somebody safe wow. um so we're working at the federal level i would love to see stogner versus california overturned um yeah. and at the state level i don't want to confuse everybody but in michigan The statute of limitations from 1983 says that if he had left the state to avoid being arrested, that the statute of limitations stops, it tolls. And then if he comes back to Michigan, it starts again. So he could be gone for 50 years, but when he comes back, the statute of limitations doesn't start until then. So he could have been arrested. But it doesn't say if he stays in the state and hides his identity that it tools. And so we're working in Michigan to try to implement that. Gotcha.
1: So that if he pretends that he is someone else, because what, what does it mean, you know, to hide your identity and uh, people who aren't interested in law at all, I understand it's because it's hard to understand. (laughs) Right. But right, like hide your identity can mean a whole lot of things.
2: Yeah. It just means that nobody identified him or linked him to the crime before the statute of limitations tolls okay, It's done. So, um, you know, if he had left the state and I didn't know who he was, we could arrest him. But Mm. because he stayed in the state and we didn't know who he was, he can't be arrested. And to me, it's a game and he won. We may as well have played rock, paper, scissors and he wins and so he can't be arrested. Mm.
1: Have you looked and is there similar, I mean, are laws very similar to that in other states?
2: No. (laughs) In fact, Stoddner versus California um, in the Supreme Court was based on a case where a state did say that. Um, They said that this person could be arrested, even though they didn't leave the state for various reasons. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's not constitutional. Okay. So I don't believe the Supreme Court today would make that same decision. Mm. What they're saying is that it goes against the... um, ex post facto clause in the Constitution which says you can't make something illegal after the fact and then arrest somebody if it wasn't illegal when they did it.
1: But rape is always illegal.
2: Right. So the the four ex post facto explanations are the first one is can't make something illegal that wasn't legal when it was done. Well, this was illegal when it was done. Right. Um, the second part of that is you can't make something a greater crime with more punishment than it was at the time it was committed. Okay. This was a felony then, it was it's a felony now. You can't increase the punishment. It was punishable by life then, it's punishable by life now. So, my case shows why it would not be unconstitutional.
1: But that's not even a possibility to argue because of this whatever the last name was versus Dr. California. Versus-
2: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Right. So tell me now, you know the identity of this man. Does he know who you are uh,
2: name-wise?
1: <laughs> are you know. allowed to answer that? <laughs> I don't know if
2: he does. Um, honestly, part of the, the security measures that we took is I had to assume a name. So Lisa Saruga is not my real name. Oh. It is what I use when I'm writing, when I'm doing anything public. You know, I had to open a private LLC. Again, a whole nother story that didn't end up very private. So the information is easily accessible now. Um, But we are very soon going to be confronting my perpetrator in a very public way. And once that happens, I'll be able to use my real name again.
1: Wow. I did read that it may happen. That you will get to yeah meet him face to face. Is that yes. the case? Like you are moving forward with that?
2: Yes. Okay. I will be giving him a Bible with my name in it. And I want him to know, I want to end this 35 year game of hide and seek. And I want him to know, you know, who I am. So here's my real name. And if he reads this Bible, he'll know who I am.
1: Wow. Oh. Well, Lisa, make sure that you do share, obviously, that story with me. I would love to be able to link it in this episode when it actually does go live, just because, I mean, only God knows what's actually going to come out of
2: that, right? Right. I'm just praying that if he runs away, I won't have the opportunity to talk with him. So I'm just praying I have a minute to talk with him. Well, I am
1: definitely joining you in praying for that as well. And just for your strength. Um, We don't need the amygdala to go wild on you, right? (laughs)
2: My amygdala is doing pretty good right
1: That's now. <laughs> well, so what does keep you pressing on in this journey that is so difficult? And I don't mean so much just your personal journey, but with anybody who legislates, it's mm-hmm. it's not a easy road. But a lot of legislators aren't really as personally connected to what they're legislating as you are. So, what keeps you pressing on when things I know are not easy?
2: You know, I, that's a good question because <laughs> <laughs> there are times where this is a marathon and I may not see this change even in my lifetime, but I have I legislators from both sides of the aisle who are championing this. Um, one of the laws, the bills that I wrote has been introduced into the state legislature. And as long as there's somebody willing to support this, I just feel like somebody's got to keep it going until people take notice. Mm -hmm. Like I said, 2.5% of rapists go to jail. I work with women every single day who will never ever see justice for the crimes that are committed against them. And to me, I can't sit still knowing that. Mm. And I know that the vast majority of women, people who have experienced sexual violence, are never going to be able to go and talk to legislators. It just isn't within them. So I, I just have committed, I'm going to do whatever I can do for as long as I can do it. And um, I have to tell you the story. I don't know if you'll use this or not, but um, the last time I was in Washington, D.C., I was meeting with individual legislators saying, you know, got to overturn Stodner. And I give them all the reasons and I make it real clear and concise for them. And um, I had Three legislators tell me it'll never happen because the Supreme Court never overturns decisions unless they're challenged through the legal system, which could take decades. And that was on a Wednesday. Thursday morning, I went back to Capitol Hill. And as I was in front of the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Wow. And regardless of anyone's thoughts on Roe versus Wade, because that's not in my wheelhouse, I try to, you know, stay in my own lane. Yeah. The Supreme Court just showed, yes, we do overturn. Right. And now they need to show that they're also going to say and will take a stance against sexual violence that leads to unwanted pregnancies. Oh, yes. And all of a sudden, those same legislators started calling me and saying now there's a window. So in October, I'm supposed to go back and meet with several legislators um, for a roundtable to discuss how we might be able to do this. So, There's a window open. We'll
1: see what happens. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I say that because I hope it isn't my daughter that is sitting in your chair someday, but it might be. And it might not just be my daughter, right? Like, I think sometimes we discount the fact that this can also happen against boys and men, too. And so as we close here, I know that you've experienced the grace of God in so many ways. And Mm -hmm. I guess as we close out, I just want to know, in the midst of the trauma, is there anything you, you would share where you just have that tangible moment of like you just knew that the grace of God was all around you and was empowering you really to just keep taking the next step?
2: Well, first of all, that journaling and listening to God's response. Yeah, I was amazed on a daily basis how God would speak to me Mm. Individually, and tell me he loves me, he's with me, he supports me. Mm. Um, I just really recommend doing that. And I I don't know if it's okay to say this. I actually sell black journals with white pens on my website called Brighter Future, because that to me was so profound and so personal. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, we we tend to call everybody who's experienced sexual violence a survivor, and the truth is. We're not all survivors. We're not all surviving. There are some people who really are still uh, very much dead inside. Yeah. So I do use the word victim, but I want everyone to be a survivor. It takes hard work. So I just want to encourage anybody who's experienced sexual violence, do the hard work of surviving. Mm -hmm. And part of that might be getting therapy. Part of that is going to be talking to somebody that you trust not keeping it stored in a box in the back of your mind, but really addressing what has happened to you and finding healing.
1: Thank you so much, Lisa. Where, uh, your website is, Lisa, I want to make sure people know, it's not .org, tell us what it is. (laughs) It's lisasaruga.com. Awesome. And you guys can connect with her there. She has, like she said, the journals, the pens, and other resources for you. But um, thank you for the work that you're doing, for the way that you point to um, the Lord in that work, and also for coming on and so, you know, vulnerably sharing your story.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Please take a moment
1: to follow Lisa's work at lisasaruga.com. And I would be honored if you would share this episode with a friend. Tap into your current listening app and click the share button. Most listening apps have made it extremely easy to share. Just this week, I showed someone how to listen on Amazon Music. Grace Enough podcast can be found on most listening apps, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Amazon Music.
0: Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits Podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.